As a primary care doctor, daughter, mother, caregiver, I've been on all sides of our confusing and sometimes infuriating healthcare system. There are so many times that I've walked out of an appointment where I felt dismissed. And it really makes me hope and work so much harder to make sure I'm not doing that when I'm on the other side of the desk as the primary care doc. These feelings are especially true in the realm of chronic disease, particularly when there aren't obvious outward signs or lab abnormalities, especially when someone looks healthy to you but knows that something is wrong inside. These are the so-called hidden or invisible illnesses. So how do we as doctors or patients make sure that our concerns, questions, our health story is being understood? I'm Dr. Neha Patak, and you're listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. When we talk about hidden illnesses, it can range from chronic conditions like chronic pain, mental health conditions, autoimmune conditions, fibromyalgia. They're all felt by the patient, but often unseen to others, which can make it difficult to advocate for yourself, especially when you're in the doctor's office. So what are some of the ways that we can combat these feelings and empower patients with hidden illnesses to get the most out of their care? We talked with Megan O'Rourke, author of The Invisible Kingdom, Reimagining Chronic Illness, about her experience with a hidden illness, how patients can better advocate for themselves, and what doctors should know. Hi, Megan. How are you? I'm doing okay. How are you? Thanks for having me. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. I'm actually really excited for this because... I have been dealing with non-hidden illnesses in the family and found it very difficult to maneuver um, within our healthcare system. So I'm really interested to talk about it when the obvious signs to healthcare professionals aren't there. It doesn't match up with what we see in our data or what we expect and what that looks like. So can you get us started with just sort of a, a brief intro to what you went through and what led you to sort of wanting to write this book. Absolutely. The kind of illness that I experienced and the kind of experience I'm writing about are, you know, these so-called invisible illnesses. That's why I called the book The Invisible Kingdom. Um, and in my own case, the the quick version of the story, which is actually hard to uh, boil down, starting when I was 21, I began having a host of unexplained symptoms that roamed my body some of them neurological, like it would feel like I would have little electric shocks all over my body, some of them joint pain, some of them things like brain fog and fatigue. I started experiencing these shortly after I graduated from college and I had just moved to New York, excited to you know start my adult life. And no doctor I saw had any explanation for them. And they really came and went, which was one of the strangest things about it. Sometimes I was almost totally fine. And then the next day I could be pretty incapacitated. And this went on for a decade, a decade and a half. Um, The symptoms got worse. There were new ones. There were very clear cut things like hives every day for a year. Um, So my doctors were not, you know, they, they, they 
did do a lot of tests. Like there was like, maybe you have lupus, maybe you have, you know, an autoimmune disease, but nothing showed up initially on my test. And so for a decade and a half, I just lived like this without any answers. And then eventually started to search for diagnoses, but it, but it was after, if you can believe it, 12 years that I got my first diagnosis. I mean, it's interesting as a primary care doc. So I say that the two things that don't give me imposter syndrome in my life are to say that I'm a primary care doc and a mom. Um, those titles I feel very comfortable with everything else I'm, I'm still exploring, but I, I know that when people come into our offices, we're sort of matched with perverse incentives where it's sort of like, I do want to do the best by this person coming in. Um, and I was luckily in a health system that gave me time to take care of my patients. So I had 30 minutes for follow-ups, unheard of. I mean, when I tell my colleagues that, they are very jealous, um, but very happy for me. Um, But even still, you know, when I talk to my colleagues in neurology, infectious disease, rheumatology, where it's like you really need time to understand and tease out constellations of things that might be happening to people by the time they get to you, and they don't always fit a pattern, and you have like 10 to 15 minutes to have this conversation. Did you feel like that played a role in sort of the length of time it took you to to get to, if not diagnosis, but even some understanding of what may be happening with you? That's a great question. I think it absolutely played a role. I mean, I, I think the fact that the, the appointments were really tight and also, frankly, that my physicians had a lot of other things to get to before their day was over. Not just patients, but bureaucracy, paperwork, all those demands that basically our current system places on healthcare providers. So I think the combination of the short appointments, I also think the combination of, um, you know, the fact that as a young person in America today, you don't necessarily get one job and stick with it forever. You may change jobs a lot. That's what happened to me as my career progressed. I changed jobs. That meant I changed insurances. That meant I changed doctors. And so I didn't have continuity of care. And that was a really big issue because actually my first GP had been pretty good about testing and looking for autoimmune diseases. And then I just wasn't able to see her anymore. And I saw some doctors who did not have that open-mindedness. I have to say, I think also the fact that whatever was going on with me was hard to measure, at least initially, Um, and didn't show up easily on test results was one of the factors because we live in a very measurement-based symptom and take that absence of clear-cut test results and those short appointments and you have a real problem, right? Because we don't have that time and that bandwidth um, and the tools to tease out what might be going on, right? There's such a mismatch. It's interesting, but I remember going to my own primary care doctor And when you're young, you mentioned that being young is also a piece of this. Sometimes I think being a woman is a piece of this too. And you are outwardly healthy appearing. To your doctor, you may be seen sometimes, and I will say I was guilty of this as well, as the catch-up patient. So this is going to be smooth sailing. This is going to be someone where I'm really doing just like, preventive care, like, you're great, you're doing fantastic, and then I can catch up with the other ones. Right. No, I've never heard that phrase, but that makes so much sense to me. 
And that was what happened, right? I was like a runner. I was slim. I had like really low cholesterol, which actually turns out might have been a sign that something was going on because it was really low. Mm -hmm. um, but my doctor was like, you're great. You've got low cholesterol. You exercise. You eat well. Like, you're fine. You're just maybe a little anxious. You know, everyone's tired. And I don't blame that, that initial GP. Again, she was great. And being young is a piece of it because we don't expect young people to get sick necessarily. And that's one of the things that I try to bring attention to in the book is that we really are living through what I call a, a silent epidemic of these invisible illnesses. And then certainly we do have pretty good data showing that autoimmune diseases are rising in the West and they affect primarily women and they affect primarily young people. And in fact, one researcher I talked to said that his research suggested to him that the age of onset was getting lower and lower over the decades. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a lot more work to be done there. But certainly, I've, I try to just say whenever I talk to physicians, look, if you have a young woman in your office with, you know, so-called vague symptoms that roam the body, this is a category you really have to think about and take seriously, this, this kind of autoimmune disease and visible illness. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, again, people don't want to come to the doctor just for fun. If there is more sort of a mental health overlay, again, there's still something that is a need that is being unmet. And that's why they're coming to. And again, so I worked within the VA healthcare system where I really did feel not this time pressure. And I did feel like, okay, you're someone who needs me more. I'm going to bring you in earlier. I'm going to bring you yep. in sooner just because I don't know but I had that luxury. And I think that often time, that's what people are looking for too. Even if I can't give you a diagnosis, even if I can't say in my book on page 35, it says that all of this fits in this category and here's my pill. It's not gonna be a pill for every ill. It's probably not even gonna be evidence-based. It's just gonna be, I feel like you need me more. and. It is a moral injury to a lot of doctors, and we're seeing more and more of that. It's not just burnout. It's moral injury that we can't do this yeah. with our patients. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, you know, my book is um, critical in many ways of the medical system, or at least tries to expose certain limitations, let's say. But I like to say to people, it's not critical of doctors. <laughs> you know, it's it's really trying to actually say, well, the reason I'm pointing out these limitations is as much for healthcare workers and physicians as for people with illness and patients, because we are asking doctors to practice a kind of ethic of care. And so we have to, as a society, return that ethic of care to physicians and make sure that physicians are set up to be the moral leaders that they are. And I was just doing an event with a, a doctor who was talking about the rates of PTSD and burnout after COVID-19. And I think, it, as you say, it goes beyond burnout. It goes to this larger moral injury. That's so well put. So in, in sort of trying to think about what can we do in this situation as a patient, as a parent who might be experiencing this for your own child, um, and as a health professional, whether you're a physician or a, you know, a nutritionist or a physical therapist, we're all sort of set on this timer. What can someone say? What can someone do 
to kind of come in and hold some space for their time. What were some of the strategies that you found were helpful to be like, okay, I, I, everything looks great. I know you're going to say that everything looks great, but what did you say to kind of that yeah. were successful things that allowed you some more time? Well, I mean, I think I tried to be very organized as a patient. I tried to really come in with my top two priorities each time and to know that I wouldn't necessarily in certain circumstances get to everything. There were times when I would see a doctor who had more time or a better day. I would write down in advance and bring notes. I think that really helps as a patient. It can help to bring someone with you. Sometimes we get nervous or emotional and that person can help say, this is what I've seen. Um, I just want to kind of witness that. I think that what physicians can think about is the taking the three minutes to recognize and validate the experience of the person in front of you. And it might be as simple as these test results don't show anything wrong, but I'm listening to you describe your symptoms and I can see that you're suffering or I can hear that you're suffering. And our tests don't show everything about the human body. You know, I think mm -hmm. actually bringing uncertainty and a an acknowledgement of the limits of medical knowledge is weirdly <laughs> very important and profound. And I had this incredible neurologist who did just that. And she's still my neurologist. And I think she has no idea to this day, like how helpful it was to me that she just looked at me. She said, I'm so sorry you're suffering. I believe you. I don't know if I can help you. Here's like research that we're doing, just so you know, we're thinking about these questions. Right. And that made me feel part of something as opposed to invisible and alienated. Right. Yeah. I, I love that. And I think it's so interesting because um, when people came to my office and they came with a WebMD article that said, I have X condition, I know because I read it. I think a lot of my colleagues sometimes would be like, oh, so frustrating. Why? And I think what I tried to see and understand was they're saying, this is what I'm scared of. Help me understand what of my symptoms fit this and what of mine kind of rule me out. Like, help me just figure out, is this right or wrong or how should I be thinking about this? So I think that it always helped me to kind of approach it in like, a, I don't have to tell you what it is necessarily always, but I can say based on this, this and this, I don't think it's this. Based on this, this, and this, I don't think it's that. Now, we have to keep working on figuring out what it is and exactly what you said, the humility of, I don't have a test for every single thing. And some of the things I have tests for are actually meaningless. And just like you're saying, it, it's just so validating, I think, from the healthcare professional oh. to side to say that is helpful. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I'm a professor, so I teach. And I feel like any teacher has had a experience of, you know, someone coming to them and being like, it's this. And you're like, no, 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 no. It's so complicated, right? So as a patient, I totally understand that. And I've heard from a lot of physicians that they do get frustrated with the, you know, Dr. Google approach, as it were. Um, but one thing I like to point out when I talk to physicians, and it's a detail in my book, is that there's a lot of data that actually shows that engaged patients have better outcomes. And one way to simply re reframe for yourself as a physician is, oh, actually, this is an engaged patient. This is someone trying to engage with their health. And that's a really good starting place for us, not a bad starting place. Yeah, they're barking up the wrong tree. They don't have the knowledge I have. But actually, it's a sign that we're starting from a potentially productive place. If I can reflect how excited I am about that engagement and then say, look, 
what I can do is help bring my expertise to explain this is why I don't think this, but why I think maybe this, right? And I think that sometimes there's this standoff where, where we think, oh, the person wants X, right? Mm-hmm. And I actually think what the patient wants is a conversation, yeah. right? Um, and to feel taken seriously and to feel seen and heard, which are these, again, amorphous things uh, that, that our time constraints don't easily allow. But the more that a physician can pause and make that space early in a in a session, I think the more productive those 15 minutes are going to be. Yeah. So, tr- and I think also, I think reframing in the way that you've suggested and also reframing away from thinking that it's your fault. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. that go into the healthcare profession, we're problem solvers. Yeah. We want to say that we found a problem, we solved the problem, and we can feel good at the end of the day. And there's so many reasons to not feel good at the end of your day. And I think for for health professionals to just take a step back and say, okay, it's not my fault. It's exactly what you're saying. They're just coming in for more information and this is what I can do for them. I can I can be very honest, yes. but I probably will not be able to find the answer. And that's okay too. It's so nice to hear that from an engaged patient that that is an acceptable choice on their problems. And, and in fact, helpful. I do. I'm sure there will be patients who will grumble at it, right? But but I think many people I interviewed said to me, I just wished that my physicians would acknowledge what they didn't know, right? Um, because again, that creates this sort of equality actually too, right? That the physician is not pretending to have information they don't have. They're also not withholding, God, I really don't know, but so I'm just going to put up this front, Right, while the patient's sitting there, it actually creates a relationship. And I think that's part of doctoring. I really, really do. I know it's not maybe a part that med school currently focuses on. And I'd love to see reforms in, in medical education curriculum to really think about and theorize, you know, how do we care for patients um, who do live at the edge of medical knowledge? What, how should we approach that? I think that would be a big gift to everybody. And I think it's, again, like you said, it's sort of when you start with the people who need it most, everyone benefits. Because if you learn to frame the way you're seeing things in that way for the person who lives on the edge of medical knowledge, I love how you phrase that, you're going to do better by the person who, it's very clear cut. I took my two-year-old, my COVID baby, in for an ear infection. And this was not hidden. This was pus oozing out of the ear. So it was just like very clear. Here it is, ear infection. She's going to need antibiotics. So that was the conversation was around. This is how many times she's going to need it. This you can, you know, drop it in her mouth and this I can make it tasty. But what I was really focused on is, okay, so all that stuff that's there, what do I do? How do I clean it? Am I allowed to touch it? Will it just come out on its own? Like what? And so we're two weeks in, I'm treating this and it's not getting better because it was a mechanical solution. I was too afraid to cause harm. In a way, being the the mom taking the kid in gives you a perspective again as as a physician on like just how many practical questions patients have. One of the the things very, very early in your book, I think it was in the introduction that you started with was that you were a kid that woke up when the sun, basically you woke up with such possibility and happiness when the sun came out. Mm -hmm. And over time that diminished because that's when your symptoms were the worst. And I just kept picturing my three babies Mm. in bed in that same way as they're all sort of like hopping out of bed and now they're starting to come up with, you know, 
oh, my stomach hurts or, oh, this is bothering me. And, oh, and I struggle with where do I lean in and say, okay, oh, oh my God, something is wrong. And where do I just kind of say, okay, how did your parents sort of help you manage this? And you were in your 20s, you said, but how? Yeah, I mean, although in retrospect, I, I one of the diagnoses I ended up getting is this um, diagnosis of a genetic disorder that kind of explains some of what was going on, not all of it. I would say there were things going back to when I was young. I also have celiac disease and that might have started earlier hmm. than my 20s. So, you know, my parents were these um, kind of baby boomers who you know, came from large Irish Catholic families. Actually, the poet William Carlos Williams, who was also a doctor, was my dad's family's doctor. <laughs> he would like come to the house and deliver the baby and give the medicine. So they had this real faith in the expertise of the doctor. And so did my parents. And so their approach was very much just to bring me to the doctor. And if a doctor said she's fine, then I was fine. And there wasn't really much conversation around it. So I think that part of what I had to learn as a patient was actually how to be a patient. I'm also part of the reason it took more than a decade to get diagnosed because I didn't know how to say, you know what, something really is wrong mm -hmm. um, to, to my doctor. And I think that's a really interesting part of the education we need to do, which is to help us figure out, well, what is significant and what's not? You know, what's, what is the, the daily aches and pains of living just part mm -hmm. of life? And, and what's maybe pathological or you know maybe could be supported somehow and those are the questions that you're asking and we don't maybe have great answers to those questions in this country because the way that medicine works is very much focused on fixing rather than preventing um, yeah. so I did become really interested in things like nutrition and lifestyle and the ways in which I had to be to learn to listen to my own body like I learned oh I can't eat gluten and eggs you know I can eat eggs, but then I don't feel good for two days. So that's a very simple shift I can make that's non-medical, exactly. So I grew up with immigrant parents from India where it was like, the doctor is one part of this. I don't believe them. We're going to do our herbs and we're going to do our own thing. It's our food and we're going to focus on the rhythms of your GI patterns. And so there was like very much a focus of like, this is, your health is what happens at home. And the mm -hmm. doctor can do a couple of things, like maybe your vaccines. Yeah, like the opposite. <laughs> right. the opposite experience. Like I've come to like, I'm now like that with my kids, right? I'm like, did you go to the bathroom? And it's so true. Again, you also mentioned that um, Hemingway, is it Hemingway that yeah. said it was, it's very gradual until it's sudden. And that's exactly what where prevention lives. You're not diabetic the day you get that diagnosis. Yeah, exactly. Um, the day that your A1C switches. It's a pattern of your lifestyle and what you're eating and how you're fueling your body for years. Um, and so even when it is something that's not a constellation of symptoms that we can diagnose, we really, as healthcare professionals, also need to help people kind of live in a way or help prescribe food, exercise, stress management in a way that is going to at least sort of not fuel the flame of anything else that's going on as well. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And then I think where it gets really tricky, it brings us back to time, right? I mean, there's some baselines that we we all, we know. Um, and then there are these more subtle things that, that take time to tease out. And I've really thought that, you know, given the scope of chronic illness in America, 
and in particular, the scope of these autoimmune diseases that are rising, these invisible illnesses that can really respond to lifestyle management, if not be cured, it does feel like we need to sort of reimagine the system and revolutionize it in a way that brings in like the health coach along with the doctor. You know, I don't know where the money for that comes from or how we do that. But there's just there is a coaching aspect to this um, that I think many people who are, you know, well off are availing themselves of but that I would like to see available to everyone as people learn how to live with diseases that are responsive to lifestyle changes. Yeah. So in my other hats, I'm internal medicine, but also lifestyle medicine, which is an emerging field where we're really focused on that. So, you know, how do you bring that into your team-based approach so you're not just doing, you're doing some fundamental prevention, but also some treatment, some reversal of certain conditions that really are lifestyle dependent, but that, you know, it, it, it can't hurt you to live a healthy lifestyle. Exactly. <laughs> I hadn't heard um, of lifestyle medicine. That's really fascinating. That seems like a much needed area for us to lean into as a kind of national priority. Well, I am, I am glad you're saying that. I think a lot of that work is being done because like you said, yeah. it's time and that's very much a team-based sport. Yeah, definitely, so, right. So I, I'm just so thankful to you for your time. Anything you wish I had asked you that I didn't? You know, I was really interested in what you said about um, physicians blaming themselves. And I write a lot in the book about patients kind of blaming themselves, people blaming themselves for um, ending up with an autoimmune disease and feeling like it's something about my, you know, inauthentic life that's made me sick. And I guess I'm just, you know, in the book, I really try to make this case that this is something we're all in together, that as we think about environmental changes, um, ecological changes, the, those things are probably what are behind the rise of um, some of these illnesses, changes in our diet, in the industrialized food system. Mm -hmm. And so as much as we experience illness as a solitary thing and the, the physician experiences the shame of maybe I'm failing as an individual feeling, we're really all in this together. And yeah. this is a kind of social problem that I think conversations like these and just talking about the problem. I'm optimistic in some way might help us get to um, new frameworks for really understanding and recognizing and seeing these invisible illnesses for what they are. Yeah, I, I love that. And thank you for ending with that. It, it ultimately, it all, like if you want to go upstream of every issue, it's an all of society. That's why social determinants, environmental determinants, yeah. critical. You're just not going to get to where when you finally identify that something is wrong um, and be able to help a population. You're going to maybe be able to help one person at that point. Yeah. Um, so I, just such a such a wonderful conversation. Thank you for your insights. Just so helpful. Oh, thanks for having me. This is a total pleasure. For more information about Megan O'Rourke, visit MeganO'Rourke.com. Thanks for listening to Health Discovered, a podcast by WebMD. I'm Dr. Neha Bhatta, Chief Physician Editor of Health and Lifestyle Medicine, and I hope this episode empowered you to make sure your health story is heard and understood. Mm -hmm.